The human voice. What a wonderful instrument. Man's principal means of communication since time immemorial. We laugh with it, cry with it, work with it, play with it. Yet how little we know about it. This is a larynx in action. What is a voice? Is it something you have, something you are, something you use? There is something about the female voice. And feminists have used the word voice to refer to a wide range of aspirations. Cultural agency, political enfranchisement, sexual autonomy, and expressive freedom. All of which have been historically denied to women. In this context, voice has become a metaphor for textual authority. By contrast, here is a male larynx. Again, the voice was recorded while the larynx was photographed. Voice difference has roots in biological sex difference. With the onset of puberty, the larynx is enlarged and vocal folds increase in length and thickness, resulting in a decrease in frequency of vocal fold vibration and thus a lowering of the voice pitch. But while bodies classified as biologically female experience about a one half octave average drop in voice pitch, biological males tend to experience a full octave average drop in voice pitch with puberty with the result being that the adult male voice tends to operate at a lower frequency range than the adult female voice. However, gendered constructions of the human voice vary widely over place and time. The pitch of the voice and how it is shaped by the vocal tract convey the most information about the speaker's gender. The 145 to 165 hertz range may be considered as androgynous, as it is within the speaking pitch ranges for both cis men and cis women. In the androgynous pitch range, other aspects of the voice, such as resonance, intonation, and voice quality, may become very important gender cues. The casual observer sees little of the vigorous activity at the site of voice production. Humans can and do place their voices in ways that are consistent with the performative aspects of gender, and voice pitch is both highly variable and subject to cultural and historical framing. Thus, like other aspects of gender, Voice is culturally and historically constructed and performative. The contemporary city environment in particular is often full of pre-recorded, disembodied, sometimes rather robotic, recognizably or attributely female voices. voices have historically been used to issue instructions. Merci. 
Perhaps precisely because women themselves have not been around to be heard. Society often, uh, through American Idol or Disney princesses, kind of has this um, idea of a singing voice that's like, if you're a really beautiful person on the inside, that like you're going to have this beautiful singing voice. And so if you have a hideous singing voice, then like maybe it's like revealing something about you. And this is why a lot of people are really way too embarrassed to sing because they're like scared of outing themselves or something. And I think that singing has also been super gendered um, because there's there's a lot of fairy tales about singing women. Like the little mermaid who loses her voice, which is kind of like uh, a little bit like uh, she loses her agency or something like this. But there's and a lot of our Western mythologies involve the line, and she had a heart of gold and the purest singing voice. And so I think that just in terms of our myths, um, girls are kind of raised to like have these heroines um or these uh role models that are beautiful inside and out and have beautiful singing voices um this really butts up awkwardly against how technical singing has become and uh how since the since like 2009 uh i believe i read an article just kind of colloquially saying that like Auto-tune is used by every single singer in the industry. And so um, in order to have an industry standard voice, you have like a technologically corrected voice or a technologically perfected voice. And so I'm interested in this kind of weird disconnect between like the mythological, fantastical, like beautiful woman who has a heart of gold. And like the fact is that like all the music that we listen to of singing voices is just thrown into some kind of an algorithm anyways. <laughs> Here is the airway leading from the lungs to the larynx and thence via the pharynx, mouth and nose to the outside. The culture of the classical music world also perpetuates so many things that I'm against, like patriarchy, racism, you know, it's terribly appropriative. And of course there are exceptions, like I'm a, I practice basically contemporary music. So I do premieres of new work and I'm often approached by composers to premiere their work. Um, and I really enjoy doing that because it can be a dialogue with whoever's making up what I'm going to be presenting on stage. And so the question, I mean, there's just so many questions and not that many answers, <laughs> but like the question about if I say something on stage or if I sing something or if I agree to perform a certain work, um, is that my voice? What, what of that is my voice and what of that is not my voice? And so in my training, which was mainly the standard repertoire, so like Mozart, Puccini, you know, Handel, whatever, um, I kind of feel as though there's a culture of the student and the master.
And uh, so there's this hierarchy involved in the learning process of the voice that kind of forces you to respect authority, um, forces you to kind of take what's said at face value and integrate that and truly embody it. It's, it's truly an embodied art form. And so you can't put it down. You're constantly integrating the things that your teacher is saying. And that's really interesting. And those things, while I don't think they're, I don't think they're negative in and of themselves, I think that they're also tools that the patriarchy uses and that white supremacy use to kind of put, keep people down and put them in their place and keep them kind of under their thumb. So this whole hierarchy um, of learning. And so it's been really interesting to kind of, I've been trying to kind of extricate myself from a belief that th that dynamic in my life is necessary in order for me to have value as someone who makes noise on stage. Singing is 80% psychological and 20% physical. And so, but it's odd because yeah, it's, it's all about technique. And so I really kind of thought it was this curious position where, um, you know, we have these myths on one hand that are like, if you have a beautiful soul, singing will just happen. And professional singers know that is not the case. We are like locked in rooms working on our technique in like these technical processes for ages. And it's our job to just like go onto the stage and let the technique melt away and make it look like that technique was never there. And so in effect, um, it's kind of almost like erasing labor and um, and literally turning our intellectual labor and processes into like this idea of embodiment that like, you know, we were just like born with these beautiful voices. <laughs> um, and so it's it's odd how like the act of classical singing or the practice of classical singing for me was always one of objectifying myself, like not in a sexual objectification way, but like of a... Like, you are an object, you are a uh, muse, you are going to channel someone else's songs, and you are also your own musical instrument. Opera is an interesting thing in terms of gender, because, um, I mean, a lot of people know about the castrati, which is when people would basically castrate their young sons so that they could become these amazing um, singers, uh, virtuosic singers in, in opera. And that was in the Baroque era. And so um, people would like do this and it's not acceptable to do that anymore. And so now um, women sing these roles that were originally technically maybe written for men, or at least the idea of a male voice doing these high pitches um, that are required for these roles is still kind of embedded in the culture. And so, and so like you have women and I, I was, yeah, I think like, I actually think this might be one of the reasons why I am gay <laughs> because I, throughout my university career, I would see these women like basically dressing in drag right and like making out on stage with <laughs> these like femme always femme sopranos right and it was hot like it's super hot and their love scenes and it's often like the younger 
more virile like man seducing or like you know being sung by a woman and you know and my first like same-sex kiss like happened on stage you know as a soprano and so that's really interesting because I was ta I was thinking earlier about um, why we think that a certain voice is gendered like why do we hear Siri and think that she is a woman the, the tone of her voice is really deliberate and it's really calming and it's really soothing. And it has to do with, in my mind, like about effective labor. So it's this kind of managing of the user's emotions, whoever is interacting with Siri. You know, often you're using Siri when you're in a traffic jam and it's super stressful. <laughs> When we speak, our vocal cords uh, vibrate. And um, it's like a tiny vibration that we might feel, but we don't really think about it. It's super instinctive, it's automatic. Uh, I, I, it's, I barely am contemplating what my voice sounds like right now. I just trust the process. It's a little the same in how we feel our emotions because um, our body is very predictive in how it builds its kind of rhythms inside of it. It, it. It's constantly taking in information and trying to understand uh, what physiological sensations to give you to optimize the situation. And because uh, we're all different individuals, our brains are going to work differently. We have different histories with certain things. And so I'm, I'm interested in how these little micro rhythms in our body are kind of like our vocal cords and that they also like attune and speak and control what my face looks like and control what my voice sounds like. Verbal continence is an essential feature of the masculine virtue, of prudence, soundness of mind, moderation, temperance, self-control, that organizes most patriarchal thinking on ethical or emotional matters. Women as a species is frequently said to lack these ordering principles. In general, the women of classical literature are a species given to disorderly and uncontrolled outflow of sound to shrieking, wailing, sobbing, shrill lament, loud laughter, screams of pain or pleasure, and eruptions of raw emotion in general. For it is women's inborn pleasure always to have her current emotions coming up to her mouth and out through her tongue. Silence is the good order of women. Sound itself is regarded as the means of purification as well as of pollution. Okay, so what is a body? Right? And 
So for the human voice, which is what I studied for a long time, you can have vocal folds and not have a voice. So you can have what's seen as like the voice box or whatever, which isn't used technically at all, but people think about it that way. Um, but if you don't send air through it, you don't have a voice. So the vocal folds need to be made to vibrate in some way. And so even like a clarinet or a guitar or um, a computer or any anything that makes sound at all is, if you think of that as a voice, it always has to be produced by something. And so, and then there's also this idea of like, so the disembodied voice thinking about the movie Her and Siri and um, Alexa and all of these kind of like tools that have come from technology. It seems that technology, the goal of technology is often to make itself invisible and to just have the function present. And it's funny because that's also what we as women are often made to feel in society. Like, as a woman, we are supposed to just do our labor, our emotional labor, do whatever it is we have to do or contribute or work on, and then just, but really not be seen. Like, we, we, aren't, we aren't supposed to exist. And that's the case with people of color, like with especially indigenous people in Canada, you know, like disabled people, like there, there are certain classes and groups of people that are, that are used and valued in so much as they're able to contribute to society, to a capitalist society. But ultimately at the end of the day, the larger capitalist society just wants us to go away because having a body means having needs. Like a phone needs to be charged. And I'm sure if Apple could figure out a way for their phones not to have to be charged, they would. My apologies. Well, I think that the voice is a technology because there's a, there is a technique and a process to how we voice ourselves. And that can be part of our gender performativity in terms of how loud we speak, how musically we speak, uh, whether I'm choosing to speak really high or whether I'm choosing to speak kind of low. Um, I, my, my, my English speaking voice kind of goes low all the time. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of, and even just like technologies of projection, people don't know how to yell in a room sometimes. I don't know why. Um, some people don't know how to whisper. <laughs> and, um, and in the same way, there's technologies of language. And so there's a lot of physical processes and codes that even existing and communicating consist of to have a voice in technology is to have agency and power um and so i think that you can kind of use technology and uh use what it was designed for you to have but there's this question of whether you have power or a say or a stake in how the corporation um conducts itself or um if it's considering you If you're just using the technology the way that it was supposed to be used, then like, do you really have a unique agency in the system? Uh, so there's a lot of ways that you could consider a voice 
in a technological context, I'm particularly interested in uh, machine voices or what that might mean, uh, especially in wake of AI, but maybe even older than AI. Like, uh, did my body itself without my soul ever have a voice to begin with? Like the physical materiality of my vocal cords give me a limited set of possibility. And so like, how can I talk about that voice of myself without speaking over it, so to speak? Um, so I'm, I'm interested in that from a feminist perspective as well, because uh, so often, even in our history, women have been kind of made analogous to like the landscape and, uh, you know, inert matter. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from this long history of, you know, Pygmalion kind of myth, you know, Pygmalion the sculptor in Ovid's Metamorphosis, uh, falling in love with his own sculpture. And it's not so much, I think, that he's falling in love with this external object, but that he's falling in love with himself. It's a kind of narcissus, right? So he's created this thing, and it's a reflection of him. Mm-hmm. So it's really like this feedback loop of self-love. Um, and I think we see that with our devices too. Like they're so programmed to us, you know, like we choose, we customize them. We choose like the the background on our device and we choose the voice and we choose like, it tells us our appointments and it tells us about like how our life is going to be that day and that week. And there's this kind of constant reflection of ourself in our devices. And so I think our techno-fetishization is not even so much a fetishization of an external object as it is a fetishization of ourselves externalized. So Narcissus is this beautiful youth in the kind of, in the, I, I would love to say the original myth, but that's kind of the great thing about Greek mythology is that there's no origin story really it's all just a bunch of rumors (laughs) that different people have stole so in in Ovid's version of the rumor um I guess that Narcissus was this beautiful youth who was obsessed with looking at himself in the pond um and uh he you know he was so obsessed with himself that he uh died of starvation or maybe drowned I'm not sure and there's been a lot of um a lot of talk about narcissism in new media recently, especially with like the flatness of the screens that allow us to look at our Facebook profiles and, um, you know, how we seem to be gazing at ourselves obsessively and maybe losing out on our larger environmental context. Um, I found it curious that there's this word narcissism, which exists for this character who's human. And then there's this, this other character that I discovered in the Ovid myth called Echo. And she, she repeats everything that Narcissus says and is in love with him. She has, was there in that mythology. She was previously cursed. And so she just followed Narcissus around and repeated everything he said to her. And what I find curious is that if Narcissus was just merely self-obsessed, he probably would have been into her. He would have liked her. But I think that what I found curious about this mythology is that the interactions of these two characters kind of hint that it wasn't just self-obsession. <laughs> because um, he found her creepy, irritating, told her to go away. And, um, and so I started asking myself, well, why is that? And so there's something troubling about the sonic, but it goes deeper than just son- like sound. There's also... Um, 
this once again this relationship to the earth and this relationship to the female um, that is worth investigating. Um, for one thing, Echo's calls were not instantaneous. There's a there's a lag. An echo implies a lag. Also, kind of a site of reflection against another body. And so it's about a problematic embodiment. Uh, and it, it implies another form of consciousness as well, because the river is not conscious. The river is automatic. It's uh, no, It changes in relation to you, where the reflection goes, whereas you can't control where an echo comes. It bounces off the entire environment, and it kind of implies you in a 3D space. Um, and so I've, I've been really interested in this, like, kind of physical, corporeal relationship that we have between, like, ways of knowing ourselves that are either what I call visual narcissist or oral echoist. And so I'm interested in exploring both of these things in my art. I'm particularly invested as well in not just kind of being so quick to draw the, like, you know, man, uh, human, patriarchy, uh, echo, woman, uh, kind of like uh, division, because um, Echo, Echo is also like not a human, she's a nymph. And so she's actually kind of this strange uh, physical embodiment of the environment. And whereas narcissist is human. And so I kind of have to ask, like, you know, at what points do I become more narcissist human? And at what points am I participating more in this like feminized uh, kind of odd environmental nature? <laughs> um, and and she also exists purely as voice. She's invisible uh, in some of the mythologies, like her body disappears. Um, and so I think there's there's something there to like technologies that have this problematic, like, is there an agency there? Is there not? Um, also like uncanny valley stuff and also just frustration with lag in general and also like a frustration and a lack of fidelity because like she always gives back this like screwed up weird version of what you said um which can relate to ai but i just think sometimes ai is just so like openly celebrated and like not uncanny at all in contemporary culture <laughs> so i i think that there's this like moment where I, I really I really look for art that's going to make people feel uncomfortable and feel a little bit like I'm not sure if I like this even though it's reflecting me back <laughs> I think the concept of a disembodied voice is even that it's kind of a gendered concept in that it's a it's a concept of it's a creation of patriarchy I don't think any, I've never heard a disembodied male voice, to be honest. Like in my limited kind of basic um, experience of technology while I've been watching, like watching for this concept, it's always a woman or what we perceive to be a woman. Right. And it always evokes a body in our imaginations. And so whether or not that body like where the space in which that body exists doesn't necessarily matter it's that the body exists even if it's in our imagination it's so easy to abuse this siri like she kind of invites it you know like there's tons of stuff online if you google it like flirting with siri or a, like you know and it always kind of turns into this abuse where people are swearing at siri or asking her to do really like explicitly dirty sexual things you know and it's 
it's like obviously Siri can't really consent to the to being treated that way and she has to she has a programmed role that she plays but the fact that she's voiced by an actual female woman and the fact that she kind of has this presence that is yeah it feels subjective you know and i think that it's not far off or it's not weird to think about her that way like i think we should engage with Siri in an ethical way because ultimately even if Siri doesn't have feelings which i i would like question um maybe she does i i also feel like the way we treat siri the way we treat tay affects how we treat actual women in the world right Thank you to participants Erin G, who is a artist, composer, and educator, as well as to Rebecca Woodmass, who is an opera singer who also works in technology, and to Hilary Bergen, who is a PhD candidate in the humanities. This has been a production of the XX Files, made in residence at Studio XX 2017.